Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here again with John Mitchell. This week we're talking about the Big Ten. We're going to be looking at the Big Ten West, then the Big Ten East, and uh, finishing everything up by looking at what we're, where we think the championship game is going to end up, whether we think any of these teams are going to end up in the college football playoff, and uh, just the general tenor of where we think the Big Ten is going to end in uh, the general perception of the college football world. So, uh, yeah, John, very excited to talk about the Big Ten, obviously, this week. This is uh, where I cut my teeth as a college football fan, growing up a Badgers fan before I even, you know, really knew who the Wyoming Cowboys or the Oregon Ducks were. So, um, and obviously, as everybody knows out there that listens regularly, I'm going to be headed back out to Big Ten country soon, uh, you know, within a week of this uh, podcast recording. So, um, you know, really excited to look at how this season's going to end up because obviously I'm going to have to see some, you know, either really excited or really dejected fans on the Penn State campus this year. But we'll get to that in the Big Ten East segment. We're starting up this week with the Big Ten West. And we're going to be sorting these out based on how the recent Big Ten media poll finished up. So, um, you know, the way this lines up in this poll, I think everybody is pretty much in agreement that uh, Illinois is going to finish last in this division again. Um, The Lovey Smith experiment is kind of becoming a little bit heated under the seat, I think, in Champaign. Um, What do you think is going to happen with this Illini team this year, John? I think it's pretty fair and accurate to say that they're, you know, obviously at the bottom of the pecking order in the Big Ten West. But, you know, I don't think either of us were huge fans of the Lovey Smith hire to begin with, typically – Um, NFL coaches who have flamed out don't typically have success at the college level after having flamed out in the NFL. And, you know, to be fair, Lovey Smith's a a coach that was coach of the year at one point with the Chicago Bears, led the Bears to a Super Bowl. So he did have some, you know, clout behind him. But, you know, things haven't gone very well so far in Champaign. They have some interesting pieces, though. I don't know if they're going to be able to put them together. They've got some really good transfers that have come in so far. Uh, this off season as well, and really done. He's done some pretty nice things on the recruiting trail, but just figuring it out on the actual football field and getting it together has been tough. They've got one of the more exciting players in the Big Ten, and Reggie Corbin at running back. He's, you know, a game-changing running back. But the whole question and something that's kind of plagued Lovey Smith's tenure so far has been quarterback play, right? Like who who takes the snaps under center? As good as Corbin is, you know, he's going to have trouble running against some of the stout defenses in the Big Ten when they're stacking the box because there's no fear of the passing game. And there was no fear of that last year either. Uh, Illinois ranked 114th in the country in passing offense last year. This year they're going to be breaking in a new quarterback with A.J. Bush having exhausted his eligibility. And that position is still not decided. You have a lot. You have several names, whether it's um, M.J. Rivers or Isaiah Williams, or whoever ends up playing quarterback for the Illini, they've got a tall task ahead of them. 
Uh, obviously, the cupboard's not super full, but there are, like I said, some interesting pieces. But it's going to be in a tough division, a division that's pretty deep, top to bottom. It's going to be hard for them to finish anywhere but, you know, seventh. Yeah. I, I, I think as much as the offense needs to grow and rebuild, it also hinges a lot on a defense that looked absolutely terrible against a lot of Big Ten offenses last year. And to say that against Big Ten offenses is something, because a lot of them are three yards in a cloud of dust. So to not be able to see what's coming at you there, especially for a guy like Lovey Smith, who's supposed to be a defensive guru and was supposed to really bring some stability to that side of the ball, I think that's really where he's going to be on the hot seat this year. That defense was, um, you know, it was young last year. It wasn't um, a very experienced unit. You really hope that, you know, out of, um, I, I, I think it's like 17 out of 19 guys who had double digits and tackles last year returned from last year's unit. So you hope that getting that muscle memory at least does something for that unit Be- But honestly, there's really nowhere to go but up for a group that was really as bad as it was last year. They have to at least go up a little bit there, you know, offering some kind of support to that offense. Otherwise, there's there's really no hope in Champaign this year. And I would not be shocked in the least, not just to see... Uh, Illinois end seventh in that division, but also to see Lovey Smith run out of town. Yeah, I think he's definitely on one of the hotter seats in the conference. And I'm glad you brought up defense because this is a team that gave up 63 points to Iowa last season, which is pretty much a full Big Ten slate worth of points for Iowa. I don't know how you even yeah. manage that. 63 to Iowa, they gave up 63 to Maryland as well and Maryland at that point was probably starting I think you might have you might have taken some snaps at quarterback in that game I can't actually remember um so I don't really know how that's possible that the defense definitely answered as much as the quarterback play was bad last year and I mean you look at the numbers like that and it's easy to see how you know they plumbed it it's actually kind of incredible that they, that they even won four games honestly like that with the as bad as they were defensively and as bad as they were a quarterback last year it's kind of incredible that they pulled out four wins, including two Big Ten wins. Somehow beating Minnesota by yeah. what fifty-five to thirty-one. PJ Flex boat was not rowing that day, that's for sure. So no, yeah, I, I I think seventh is is easy. I think we're probably both in agreement on them finishing last, but that they could yeah. even be in contention to finish last in the entire Big Ten. It wouldn't surprise me. If not the entire country this year, I would not be surprised to see them just have a complete slide. Um, You mentioned the boat, though, and uh, the next team that came up in uh, the Big Ten media poll rankings is indeed Minnesota. Uh, P.J. Fleck has has shown some promise in beginning to, to build the Gophers out of, you know, the absolute seller of the Big Ten. They're, they're showing some signs of promise, but it's interesting. One media voter actually voted them first in the Big Ten. Oh, wow. In the Big Ten West. 
Um, you know, uh, Nebraska and Iowa split 14 first place votes. Wisconsin got four. Northwestern got one. And Minnesota got one. So, somebody's high on P.J. Fleck, obviously. Somebody's high on this roster coming into this season. I'm imagining it's somebody in the Twin Cities area in terms of media voters. Um, gotta keep the base, you know, happy especially if you're under obligation with your paper or whatnot to release your your votes to the to the public because everyone loves to read them. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think it's a really high assessment of this team. I, I think they're a team personally that could go bowling, but I don't think they're a team that's going to come anywhere near the top of the Big Ten West this year. No, that would be a major surprise, and uh, I think we can we'll both offer to buy whoever voted them first beers if they end up actually winning the Big Ten West this year. Because I mean that's a that's a hell of a prediction, to be honest with you. I I do think PJ Flex a really good coach. I do think he's got um, Minnesota moving in the right direction. But this division kind of reminds me when we were talking about the Pac-12 last week that really there's so many quality teams like. I guess there's so many like second tier teams in this division, like not teams that you think are really going to threaten to win the whole Big Ten or even or you know compete for the college football playoff or anything. But there's so many teams that are just right there together. It wouldn't be that big of a. I think I'd be surprised if Minnesota jumped up and won the division, but I wouldn't be that surprised if they finished like second or third. You know, if they surprised a few folks, ended up pulling out eight or nine wins and, you know, winning five or six games in conference and finishing um, in the top half of the Big Ten West or even really close to the top, that wouldn't be that big of a surprise. I like P.J. Fleck a lot. Um, they have a lot of returning talent. I think they have 16 returning starters on both sides uh, on the, both sides of the ball. They finally have some um, returning production at quarterback. If Zach Anikstead can stay healthy and then, you know, Tanner Morgan got plenty of experience last year too when he was injured. Um, and then on defense, Antoine Winfield's kid, Antoine Winfield Jr. was outstanding last year before the injury took him out. Uh, it also feels weird to watch play college football. Um, but um, they've got, they've got some talent. I, I would be surprised It'd be a big surprise if they won the division outright, but I do think they're they're a bowl team. I would agree that they're probably going to go bowling again, which is you know for Minnesota that's an accomplishment. Oh yeah, you can't really knock that at all at a school like Minnesota. The, this is not the, the early nineteen sixties. This is not that last golden era for Minnesota football at all. And PJ Fleck is getting that team to a place of relevance again. I really think he is, and I think a lot of that really hinged on having a young team last year and being able to begin to build up some talent. So, I, you know, I'm confident that they're going to take the next step. He's a great coach. I loved him at Western Michigan, um, and I think he is the type of coach that can begin to build a sustainable you know, eight, nine win program. And that's really, we've talked about it with other programs, for instance, Texas Tech in the Big 12, where a nine win season is not something to be scoffed about. And to be able to do that year after year after year, and to be able to churn out those kind of seasons is, it, it's really, it's really laudable. You can't, 
you can't knock something like that. And I think Fleck is on the path toward that. I think eight wins is a completely reasonable place to put this team this year. They'll at least get to six in the regular season. So It's all about consistency with the Golden Gophers this year, too. You know, is it going to be... Um, are they going to be the team more week to week that blew out Wisconsin at the end of the regular season on the road that also blew out Purdue pretty late in the season? Or are they going to be the team we talked about just a second ago that got housed by a bad Illinois team? You oh, know, yeah. Which Minnesota team shows up week to week is really going to decide what their fate is. And if they can get that more consistency, then maybe they move from a 7-6 and six year. Maybe they take that next step to 8-4, and 9-3 whatever it ends up being in the regular season and maybe get into a, you know, an upper tier kind of bowl game, non new year six probably, but you know, an upper tier, you know, really good bowl game for them. That would be a really big accomplishment for flag. Oh yeah. And well, and you mentioned it earlier, they were the same type of team that lost to Illinois by 24 points. So it, it really does come down to a lot of young players. You mentioned both of their freshman quarterbacks that got playing time last year and they also had a pair of freshmen running backs. They had a lot of youth throughout both their offense and their defense. So it, it, it shows that Fleck is beginning to recruit the type of players that he's confident putting in young and beginning to sort of, you know, give their baptism by fire. And really he's hoping that that forged them into something better this year. I, I think that could maybe eke out a win, maybe two more than they had last year, but it's going to continue to yield dividends over the next couple of years. And, you know, hopefully as he, he continues to recruit sustainably along the way. Yeah, and, you know, progress isn't always shown in wins and losses. I think no. that's important for people to understand. Minnesota could be a much better and more consistent team this year and still finish 6-6 six and six in the regular season. It wouldn't yeah. be a massive surprise if that happened. They could just, instead of you know beating Wisconsin, for instance, they could lose to Wisconsin but end up beating Illinois, winning the games they should, maybe losing the games they shouldn't, being an overall more consistent team and still finishing around the same. Totally. I, I think that speaks exactly to where Minnesota is at. And, you know, another team that was, you know, lower in the polls, actually one of the only two in the Big Ten West that didn't get first place votes is a team that actually showed bursts of promise last year, especially, obviously, in the Ohio State game. I'm talking about Purdue. Um, they are... You know, projected to go fifth in the conference or in the division. They're a boiler, you know, this Boilermakers team, I think, is. I don't know. I, I, I think putting them fifth speaks well to where they're at. I think it speaks as well to the fact that there are a couple of programs that are down this year. Um, they're a team that has. I don't want to knock them because they do have obvious talent throughout the roster, but they just don't have the kind of depth that other teams in the comp in, in the division do. And, and it really hinges on having impeccable block against injuries for Purdue to have the kind of season that would put them, you know, anywhere in, in a major spo spoiler role beyond one or two games. 
Right. I think they're right there with Minnesota, honestly. Yeah. I, they're kind of, for me, probably 5A and 5B. Yeah. Either uh, one of them's going to finish probably fifth, one will probably finish sixth. And maybe with some good, you know, maybe turnover luck or good fortune in some games, maybe they're able to jump up to third or fourth or something like that, kind of depending. But Purdue is another team that has to fight consistency issues, and that typically happens with young teams that don't have a lot of depth, like you were saying. But the clock began ticking on Jeff Brom as soon as he signed that seven-year, $36.8 million contract extension, despite the fact that he's got a 500 record in two years in West Lafayette. Which, again, records aren't always an indicator of progress. Obviously, Purdue is a better football team right now under Jeff Brom than they have been in many years. Yeah. But when you're getting paid north of $5 million a year to coach football, six and six ain't going to get it done. Results are critical. Yeah. Right. And obviously, there's talent. Uh, One of my favorite football players in the country is Rondale Moore. We talked about him glowingly all of last year. I mean, from the season opener... They opened up on, I believe it was a Thursday night against Northwestern. He just set the world on fire immediately as this 18, 19-year-old kid that, you know, no one could catch. You get him the ball in space, and it was, you know, bad. I mean, he dominated against Ohio State um, in that game. That was kind of one of the bigger shocking results of last season. But then, you know, Purdue had some kind of unfortunate results, too. Like we just talked about, they got blown out by Minnesota. Um, The bowl game against Auburn was a really poor showing for Purdue, really right after the Bromness. Usually you get a boost. Your team gets a boost when your coach decides to spurn an offer Mm -hmm. from another team and stick around. And if they got one, it certainly didn't show on the field. I mean, that was was a laughable effort. That was ugly. Um, yeah, I think it depends on, you know, with uh, with David Blau now gone, Elijah Sendelaire, he's got a lot of experience, but he was a starter coming in the last year but then couldn't take care of the football. You know, in that Northwestern game, he threw three or four interceptions, fumbled once or twice, you know, had a really tough outing, and Blau ended up getting the call. And, you know, Purdue started 0-3 last year, and it was hard to dig out of that hole. You know, they finished six and three in their last nine games in the regular season after that. But you start 0 and three, and that, you know, obviously ends up being six and six. And they lost all those games by four points or less. So yeah. turnovers like that were so crucial for them last year. So ended up finishing with one of the worst turnover marks in the country. So taking care of the football for him and for everybody on that roster is paramount for Purdue to make a leap towards the top of the Big Ten West standings, like is like what is now the expectations in West Lafayette now that uh, Jeff Brom's, you know, there looks like long-term. Yeah, I mean, they're paying out top dollar at a school like Purdue that has not historically had much of a a pedigree at the top of the conference. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. The clock is probably starting to tick on this team. They can probably get back to a bowl game for you know, a third, a third year, I I think that's, you know, something to be, you know, spoken about in West Lafayette, because it's not an everyday occurrence. They're beginning to build, you know, like we talked about with Minnesota, that sort of sustainability, but they're also treading against a current that includes teams like we're going to be talking about soon, the the Wisconsins, the Nebraskas, the Iowas that are just consistently at the top and have, you know, developed that reputation for 
just sustained success. One of those teams has been at the top of the conference for, you know, its entire expansion other than last year when Northwestern swooped in. So, in speaking of Northwestern, you know, I... I, I, I think that's the next place we need to go because yeah. they're, you know, they're picked fourth in the poll. They're the defending champs, but they're picked fourth. And I think it might be a really dangerous place to put this team because we've talked about it in past podcasts. Pat Fitzgerald is a very underrated coach in terms of just building sound units that get that absolutely wring every last drop of talent out of the guys that they recruit. Um, And we've also talked about the fact that they have a guy who used to be an absolute blue-chip quarterback coming in in Hunter Johnson, um, who offers a lot of real promise at that position in a way that they have not had in recent years. So... We we need to account for all of that, and I I really think the media undersold this team personally. I don't know where you sit with them. Doesn't it feel like that every year though? Doesn't it feel like every year Pat Fitzgerald's team is underrated in the preseason, and then they come out and start kicking everyone's ass early in the season? Um, I mean, they were one of the one of college football's biggest enigmas last year. If you look statistically, this team should not have finished. Eight and one in the Big Ten during the regular season. They were not statistically the best team in the Big Ten West. They just weren't. I mean, you're talking about an offense that was sub 100 in almost every single category except for passing, surprisingly. But and then a defense that wasn't very good either. A defense that ended up finishing 64th in the country in total defense, and somehow that team goes eight and one in the Big Ten West or in the Big Ten total ends up stealing the Big Ten West away after starting the year one and three by the way, with losses to Duke and Akron mixed into that. So, like, I, for Northwestern made no sense last year, but part of what makes them such a dangerous team is, like you said, they just don't make mistakes. Yeah. You know, they always finish with one of the conference's highest turnover margins. They take care of the football. They don't beat themselves. You have to actually go and beat Northwestern. They're not going to give anything to you. They take – you know, they take um, on the personality of their coach more probably than any team in the country in that they don't give an inch. They fight tooth and nail every single game. And it's funny because, like you said, they don't get blue-chip quarterbacks at Northwestern. That doesn't happen. They get the guys that Fitzgerald has to groom for years and eventually get some solid play out of. Hunter Johnson has the talent to take this team to a whole nother level. And whether or not he is that guy that he was built to be, we see recruiting busts every single cycle, right? And we don't know if Hunter Johnson's that guy or not. There's a reason he didn't win the starting quarterback job during any of his time at Clemson. There's a reason for that. Part of the reason being, you know, obviously Trevor Lawrence is a transcendent talent, or transcendent talent like he is. So it'll be interesting to see if he lives up to the hype. Because if he lives up to the hype, Looking at this roster, Northwestern could easily win the Big Ten West next season. So, and if he doesn't, then maybe they do slip to fourth, fifth, maybe even sixth in the conference if he's not the guy that we think he could be. But they have a lot of talent. Patty Fisher on defense, I'll get to him more later as a spoiler ahead when we're talking about conference's best players on either side of the ball. He's one of the best linebackers in the entire country. A guy's being built as a first-round pick. He'll keep them in games. 
um, you know, spearheading a defense that has a mean streak. You know, they're gonna they're gonna play nasty, just like their coach wants them to play. So they're they're one of the more fascinating teams to me in the country because I could see them going a variety of ways, and it wouldn't surprise me if they ended up winning the Big Ten West again this season. Yeah, no, I honestly. And mentioning Johnson, I want to go into his story a little bit further because he transferred, you know, right as Trevor Lawrence was committing to Clemson. He, you know, he saw the writing on the wall in terms of bringing in another blue chip quarterback who just aligned better in terms of the cycle. You know, it really looked like Kelly Bryant was going to continue the next year and then it was going to be you know, Trevor Lawrence stepping in, or it was going to be, you know, Johnson getting his year or two at most. But, you know, he saw that writing on the wall and he transferred. But at the same time, he was, you know, he had limited play, but he went 21 of 27 for Clemson when he got to throw the football on the field. He was, you know, he showed he can do that sort of thing for a good offense. And, as much as Northwestern lost it from last year's team on their receiving core, you know, they lost the guys who have the biggest statistics, but they also retained the guys who showed the most explosive capability. And if anybody can exploit that, it's going to be a Hunter Johnson versus the type of quarterbacks that Northwestern traditionally gets. And that's why I I think it's really dangerous to put this team as low as they have been. And, you know, at at the same time, that's a testament to just how good this division could be, as you mentioned. There are just a lot of really good teams choking up the top, but there aren't any truly transcendent great teams. Right, it's going to be a division that eats itself alive, a lot like we were talking about um, the Pac-12 South last week, Yeah, a division that's just got a lot of good teams, no truly great teams in the division, I don't think. I don't know how your feelings are going to be on some of these last ones we're going to talk about. But kind of moving forward, I think the next step would be the one team that's got a lot of preseason hype surrounding them in year two uh, of a, you know, very highly respected coach and Scott Frost, but do you think the Nebraska hype train has left the station too soon? I was shocked when they came out at the at, at the very top of the media poll. That was a mind blower to me. You know, they split uh, first place votes with Iowa. Both of those teams got fourteen first place votes, and. I think Scott Frost is a great coach. I loved him when he was at Oregon. I thought he was a brilliant coach at, at UCF. And I I think he has the potential at his alma mater to bring them back to a place where at least Frank Solich had them. Or, you know, Bo Pelini had them. I don't know that... You know, like, I think once in a while he could have an Osborne-like season, but if we really get down to brass tacks, Osborne once in a while had an Osborne-like season. He only won his last three championships in his 22nd through 25th seasons at the helm. So if Scott Frost gets that long, I think he can get Nebraska back there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, 
mean, there was a time when it was thought that, not to get too off subject, I, 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 this is just a fun topic for me because I wrote about with the 25 greatest teams to not win a national championship. There was a time when it was thought that Tom Osborne could never win the big game because it took him so long to finally summit the mountain. Yeah. And I don't know if any coaches nowadays get that long to summit the mountain when that's the goal, right? Like, I, I don't, there's not patience like that in today's college football world. <laughs> Scott Frost ain't got 20 years to get Nebraska back. No. He's got to do it soon. I think the hype train is just, I think it's jumped the shark completely. I mean, I was reading um, Athlon Sports' magazine the other day, and they had Nebraska pegged not just as the Big Ten West champion, but 17th in the country total. You're talking about a team that came, has come off a 4-8 and eight year last year. I think it's time to pump the brakes a little bit on the Cornhuskers, and maybe I'll be eating crow by the end of the season because Scott Frost is a great coach. Adrian Martinez has a ton of potential at quarterback. They have talent there. And, you know, they did go 4-2 and two in their last six games last year after starting 0-6. But I also would like to point out that two of those wins are talking about Bethune-Cookman and Illinois were two of those four victories for them. Yeah. So it's not like they were beating a bunch of really talented teams. The other one was Minnesota and Michigan State, which the Michigan State win was, you know, oh, nice. Yeah. But you're talking about a 9-6 to win over a Spartans team that couldn't do anything offensively either. So I think it's a little early to crown Nebraska as Nebraska again, and that's what everybody wants to be the first to say a program like that is back. And that's what you're seeing leading yeah. up to the season is everyone wanting to get on board first. Like, I told you Nebraska was back. I told you they were going to be really good this year. And it wouldn't surprise me, honestly, with what we know about Scott Frost and his ability to coach football. It wouldn't surprise me if they jumped up. But this wasn't a quick rebuilding process. The no. cupboards weren't stocked full. Uh, after Mike Riley was let go in Lincoln. They just weren't. There was going to be some growing pains. It wasn't a surprise last year that they didn't reach bowl eligibility, and it wouldn't be a massive surprise this year to me if they didn't get there again. I think they will, but I think that's a really good next step. The next step for Nebraska to me isn't jumping forward and taking the Big Ten West. The next step is getting to six or seven wins and going bowling, and that should be a considered – and that – the. The problem with these preseason expectations is that's now going to be considered a disappointment yeah. in Lincoln and for Scott Frost if they only go 6-6, six and 7-5 six, and five in the regular season um, next year because they're going to probably be a preseason top 25 team and have all these expectations, and they might not be able to live up to them. And that's not very fair either because you're talking about a team that really hasn't done anything to deserve these expectations and would be better served to be kind of sneaking up on people. But that's the burden you have to carry when you have such a high-profile guy leading your program. Well, and, you know, I think there are a couple of things that really do sell this Nebraska program and are getting people really hyped up. Obviously, you know, Martinez at quarterback is the first really big spot. Having a freshman that, you know, was able to complete 65% of his passes and, um, you know, looked like... A, a guy who could be a great dual threat in the in the Nebraska vein, you know, a guy who could pass the ball as necessary, a guy who could also use his legs to carve up defenses, and then you have a defense that's coming back that has you know, as many I think it's like seven or eight starters from last year's unit who are back to play this year. And, uh, you know, threaten for starting jobs again. And so you have a lot of experience on that defense. I don't know that, again, I, I think there are a lot of 
what ifs that have to all fall in Nebraska's favor for that team to to make that big a leap. I, I, I as you said, it, it really is a lot to ask of a team to make that big a leap in in year two. And it is possible. We've obviously seen Scott Frost pull it off himself. So um, no need to completely write off that possibility. But I I think the two teams we're going to still be talking about in this division probably have more of the just overall depth, the program consistency, and the culture already ingrained and in place. To, to to make it happen this year. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I guess we got a little off the Big Ten media's picks because I jumped to Shark and wanted to talk about Nebraska before the end, but that was only because I was wanting to save Wisconsin for kind of later, Zach, because I know that's your team, but we, you want to talk about Wisconsin now? Does that work for you? I think it makes sense to talk about Wisconsin. Cool. You know, this team is obviously one that's near and dear to my heart. And so um, I will just put that up front as a disclaimer for everybody listening here. Um, you know, I'm looking through through red and white colored glasses at this team this year, as I have every year since I was like four or five years old and first really started to understand what college football was. So... That disclaimer, that, that disclaimer out there, I'm excited about this team this year. Um, I, and I think it all really starts with having Jonathan Taylor back. You know, Wisconsin has been renowned for running backs going back, you know, as far back as the mid-90s when Barry Alvarez was really starting to build up this program. The Badgers have been known consistently for two things throughout most of my my football watching existence. And that's, you know, big old linemen on the offensive line and running backs who just absolutely carve up any hole that those road graders, you know, plow for them. And Jonathan Taylor is as transcendent as any other running back that sat in that backfield. You know, we obviously saw Ron Dane win a Heisman back there. We've seen some some guys become really great NFL talents from the Wisconsin backfield, you know, have really, you know, solid seasons in the NFL. But I, I don't know that any of them are quite as good as Jonathan Taylor is. And so having him back is a boon for this offense. And everything else builds out from there. Obviously, you know, quarterback is one of those big question marks. But having a guy like that in the backfield really kind of mitigates the threat of that because that's always been Wisconsin's identity. Having any sort of competent quarterback play has always been gravy for that offense. So That's what it's going to take, though, to get back to being the Wisconsin that we've known to really dominate this division, though. Because, I mean... Jonathan Taylor is obviously a fantastic football player, uh, one of the most talented guys in the country. But he ran for 2,000 yards last year, and Wisconsin still lost five games. They yeah. went five and four in the Big Ten. And that strictly comes down to they didn't have it at quarterback last year. Alex Hornibrook struggled all season long. Um, 
you know, threw almost as many interceptions as he did touchdowns. So what happens this year at that position? I know it's not, it's still not decided, right? It's Jack Cohen and Graham Mertz kind of competing for the job, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I think Um, Cohen got the experience last year, but Mertz is one of the most highly touted quarterbacks um, coming in recruiting wise for Wisconsin in quite some time. If you discount the, you know, Russell Wilson transfer, um, just straight coming from high school. So it'd be interesting to see what happens there. Um, and well, I think that's really what's going to decide if Wisconsin grabs the Big Ten West back again or if they still kind of look more like a middle-of-the-pack team. I'm glad you mentioned the quarterback battle a little bit deeper because I, we've talked about this in the past and how good is experience if you actually sucked when you you know, had that experience, and Jack Cohen is, you know, a great kid. He did not have a good time on the field when he was out there for the Badgers. It, 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 in general, things did not go well for the Wisconsin offense when he was running it. I think this season really does hinge on whether or not Graham Mertz steps up and claims this position as his own, because if he has three to four years there in Madison as the starter, that team's going to be really good in 2020 and 2021. And, you know, depending on how soon he can grow, it it could have a really good season this year as well. But I I think Cohen is a really great backup. That's fair. I mean, you know, we've seen it all over the country in recent years. Freshman quarterbacks have been taking the college football world by storm. So maybe it does happen in Madison this year. Maybe Graham Mertz is the real deal, and he's able to lift Wisconsin. And if he is the real deal, that should inspire a lot of fear on the other side of the conference as well. Because not only is Wisconsin then probably the prohibitive favorite in the Big Ten West, they're match up just as well with anybody in the Big Ten East to win the whole Big Ten and maybe even compete for a playoff spot. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, I I think part of why I want to hedge my bets there, and even as a fan of the Badgers sort of not get too excited early, is this defense has lost some, some prime parts from where they were, you know, over the past couple of years. And um, they're also really young on the offensive line. As good as the offensive line is, and as much as I mentioned the reputation of them always just having a great offensive line and usually living up to that reputation, I'm a little hesitant to say it's just, you know, automatically going to happen because they're replacing four starters on that line. That's Yeah, but they replace four starters every other year, and they're all just homegrown factory offensive linemen who have been groomed their entire lives to play offensive lines specifically for Wisconsin. I I was going to let you say it. Thank you. (laughs) Well, on that note, um, you know, the last team that's kind of looking there in the big 10 West is Iowa and Kirk Ferentz always seems to pull, you know, the rabbit out of the hat just when he needs it most And if there's a season when Iowa needs to sort of get back out of the shadows of all the other teams in the conference, it's probably this year. You know, Nebraska's on a high. Northwestern stole it all away last year when it was ripe for anybody to pluck it. 
um, Wisconsin had been the hegemon for a while before that. And where's Iowa been in that mix? We haven't really seen them since they went to the Rose Bowl against Staff, you know, against Stanford and, and Christian McCaffrey was, uh, you know, there and, and making his last bowl stand. So. Well, I think what Iowa has really worked in their favor is not only do they have a returning starter at quarterback, they have an experienced returning starter yeah. at quarterback. You know, we talked about Adrian Martinez, but he's coming off of his first season as a starter. Nate Stanley is a senior, and not only is he a senior, he's a guy who's really, you know, started to make a name for himself in NFL draft circles, a guy that a lot of people are thinking could end up being a first-round pick if things go right for him this year. You know, he had he had a really good season last year. Iowa was right there in the thick of things last year for this division. Had a really good showing in the bowl game in the Outback Bowl against Mississippi State. A lot of people, you know, picked the Bulldogs to win that game. And, you know, the Hawkeyes came out and really showed their mettle and got that win. I think that was a big confidence booster for them heading into 2019 to be able to take down an SEC team like Mississippi State. Um, and, you know, they were, like I said, they were right there for the division last year. They had a three-week stretch against Penn State, Purdue, and Northwestern, where they lost three games in a row by a total of 12 points. Yeah. You know, a couple of plays here or there swings those games, and maybe we're talking about Iowa looking for a second straight division title. Yeah. This team has a ton of talent. Offensively, they look good. Defensively, I'm really excited about this team. Um, A.J. Epineza is a guy who led the Big Ten in sacks last year and wasn't a starter. He had ten and a half sacks coming off the bench for Iowa. Yeah. So what does this freakish athlete, who's one of the more fascinating prospects in the 2020 draft class, because he's an athletic just marvel, what does he have in store as a full-time player instead of kind of a part-time situational pass rusher next year? What is he going to do? when he gets to unleash, you know, all these snap 80 snaps a game or whatever it is on the Big Ten. I'm really excited to see that, and I think most quarterbacks in the conference who have to stare him down coming to the line of scrimmage are going to have some fear in their eyes. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think Evanessa is a great player to mention that's, you know, right there at the top of, you know, defensive player of the year discussions, as I'm sure we'll talk, you know, we'll talk about him in the discussion coming up in our third segment. And, you know, on the other side, you've got Chauncey Golston, who's, you know, another great player who who can wreak havoc coming through. And I think he's going to get more space as well this year. You've got a linebacking core that's got, I think, four of the five top players from last year's, you know, too deep that actually got playing time. Um, Four of those five are back. And so you've got a really experienced unit all around. That secondary is is solid. You know, they're not quite where we've seen Iowa secondaries in years past, but by the end of this year, we could definitely see them there. I I think there are a couple of, uh, you know, uh, really solid players on that unit, um, uh, especially, you know, um, who was I thinking? Um, Amani Hooker. Uh, is it, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think, you know, players like Amani Hooker really make that, that unit uh, more fearsome than you might first think they might be. So... I, I think there's a good reason why the media 
you know, 14 media members out of the 39 that vote in that Big Ten media poll selected Iowa as the top team in the division and put them right there with Nebraska um, among, you know, first place votes. Right. Well, I think that's a, a good segue into us making our picks from the conference. So I'll do the honors, I guess. Um, yeah. I agree with those 14. I, I've got Iowa at the top. I'm really high on the Hawkeyes this year. I think, like I said several times already, this division's going to kind of eat itself alive. I don't think there's going to be a t- even maybe even a two-loss division. You might see a three-loss division champ this year just because – there's just so many. There's a lot of quality teams in this league. Um, so I've got Iowa first. I've got Wisconsin coming in second. I think they're going to be right there, though. So the Iowa-Wisconsin game uh, might end up deciding the, the Big Ten West, as it has several times over the years. Um, third, I've got Northwestern. I, I think Hunter Johnson is going to end up being really good, and I think they're going to be right there as well. I've got Nebraska at four which, you know, is probably a pretty big difference from a lot of people because they're probably so high on Nebraska. And maybe they'll prove me wrong, but I'm going to let them prove it on the field before I go any further. Uh, I've got um, Purdue fifth, Minnesota sixth, and then Illinois bringing up the rear. I I think that's pretty fair. I think those top four, you could, you know, put them them on a, you know, four-sided diet and – you know, shake it up and, and choose where each one of them stand. So I, I, I got to go with my fanhood. I, I got to pick Wisconsin first. Um, I'd be disappointed if you didn't. In Mertz, we trust. In Taylor, we <laughs> trust. In defensive solidity, we trust. Um, second, I'm with you. I really think Hunter Johnson is going to be great for Northwestern. I think that's a big step up, and I think they're going to be pushing the Badgers. I think they won't win the division this year. They're not going to go 8-1 and one in conference play, but they're going to be a better team overall than they were last year. I think third, <clears throat> I think you're going to have like 6-3 and three Iowa and 6-3 and three Nebraska. And it really comes down to which team wins their game, you know, their their matchup against one another to see which one finishes third and which one finishes fourth. Um, you know, fifth, I'm going to give it to Minnesota. I, I'm going to go sixth for Purdue and then Illinois seventh. I, I think, you know, Minnesota and Purdue, again, are sort of that next toss-up at that, you know, second level of Big Ten teams. Because you really do have that that tier of four. You have those two, you know, the right. Gophers and the Boilermakers. And then, again, I think Lovey Smith is gone, if not, uh, you know, in the middle of the season by the end of the year. So Yeah, the, the top four, any one of those teams winning the division wouldn't be a surprise and Minnesota and Purdue in some order, and then Illinois last. I think that's pretty common among everyone's picks this year. Yeah. Uh, it is wide open at the top with those four teams, but if one of those four teams doesn't win it, that would surprise me. But Yeah, that well, it would make it more fun, that's for sure. Um, on that note, we'll be back really soon, everybody. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll be talking about the Big Ten East, so stay tuned. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. 
Uh, we're back from the break after talking about the Big Ten West, and now we're heading into Big Ten East country, where I will be soon enough uh, by the time we're talking about football next. So um, we're going to dive right in, uh, looking at the way the media poll lined up. I don't think anybody's going to be shocked that Rutgers was put dead last in the Big Ten East, and I don't think anybody would be shocked if they ended dead last in the Big Ten overall, and I don't think anybody would be shocked if they ended dead last in the FBS this year. Like, I'm personally, you know, Rutgers is a team that the Big Ten thought they were getting a, you know, a a middleweight when they got them out of the Big East. I don't think anybody had any pretensions that they were going to be the next major powerhouse or anything, but they saw what they were able to do against Big East competition and, you know, put themselves into the discussion once every three to five years. And Rutgers really hasn't put themselves in the discussion since their first year in the Big Ten. You know, they went eight and five that first year that they joined the Big Ten but since then, it's just been a series of diminishing returns. And I think we're going to see a lot of the same in New Jersey this year. I really do. I, I I don't know how you feel about this team, John, but I am just not confident that they're they're going to make any sort of noise at all at any level, really. Well, Zach, I don't feel good about Rutgers. Zach. I actually feel confident about Rutgers. I feel confident that they're going to finish last in the Big Ten East yeah. um, and probably the Big Ten as a whole. Um, that's my confidence level in that. But, man, it if you told someone who just started watching college football that it wasn't that long ago that Rutgers was ranked, like, number two in the country, was it yeah. 2007 they rose to number two in the country? That would just blow someone's mind. I want to... I want to go back in time and show that to somebody just because I don't think people who just started watching it would even believe that that's a possibility that Rutgers would be that highly ranked, you know, and, and, and your Kansas was up there as well. Like yeah. what, a, what a weird South Florida uh, <laughs> yeah, alternate dimension. We entered in that season. My goodness. Uh, but you know, that's the thing is it hasn't been that long since Greg Schiano had this program as not just respectable, but a legitimate, threat in the Big East, legitimate threat on the national level. Rutgers was a quality football team year in and year out, and now they're a laughing stock. I mean, they are just – when you get beaten by Kansas by 41 points, I mean, you've reached a bottom that no one even knew existed anymore, right? I mean, you can't – a Kansas team that hadn't won an FBS road game in, what, five years or something crazy like that? I don't remember exactly, but I remember yeah. every, it was the lead story on – sports center when Kansas just rocked Rutgers on the road. Like that's a new low, even for this program that's reached some really low lows in recent years. And speaking of hot seat coaches, I don't know if there's any way Chris Ash survives um, another year there. You've got a team that was just the quarterback play last season was just dreadful. And part of that comes with starting a freshman and throwing a freshman out there with very little talent surrounding him. So he was constantly harassed by, you know, especially in a division that has as many good defenses as this one has. Um, Arthur Sitowski uh, didn't have much time, but you're talking about a guy who threw four touchdown passes and 18 interceptions last year. Yeah. I mean, that's dreadfully bad. 
They did make some moves this offseason. McLean Carter, Texas Tech transfer, is on the roster now uh, with the Scarlet Knights. So maybe he can come in and win that job and provide a little more respectability at the position for a guy, you know, who does have some pedigree as a starting quarterback, did win Texas Tech's starting quarterback job coming into last season before getting hurt in the season opener. So a guy that's got some clout around him, but it's going to take a lot more than McLean Carter for Rutgers to get out of the cellar. Yeah, and I mean, you look at their, obviously you look at their conference schedule and you have to go at Iowa, at Michigan, you have to go, um, you know, you get Ohio State at home, all right, you get Michigan State at home, that that really doesn't mean anything. Um, Even going to Illinois is a toss-up. That's the game you need at home. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Point, like, yeah, Illinois will probably not be the seller team this year. But then you even look at teams that are coming to to New Jersey, and you've got UMass, you've got Liberty, and obviously Boston College is probably going to knock them off. But it wouldn't be a shocker to see either of those, you know, tiny independents, the little sisters of the poor, make make an embarrassment of the Scarlet Knights. And and that's really why Chris Ash is is on that hot seat because they're they're at the level where they have you know just the depth of talent that makes it not infeasible to say what I just said about them against the Flames and against the Minutemen. Now Owen twelve is firmly on the table. Yeah. So firmly on the table. So yeah, I I don't. Mom always said if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And uh, I don't know that I can say anything more about rockers other than going into a litany of profanity that would fit into most locker rooms across the country. <laughs> so I I think we should probably push on from here. And uh, you know the next team that the the Big Ten polls or or the you know the media poll was looking at was. Uh, Maryland, you know, and I think it's really funny just kind of looking at the media poll itself. You can kind of lump Maryland and Indiana together. Uh, Indiana got 86 and a half points. Maryland got 82 and a half points. I didn't even realize half points were available in a tiny media poll, but, you know, whatever. Um, But Rutgers was at 37 points. That's how unconvinced people are about this team. Uh, just to put it in perspective from our last segment, Illinois was at 34, and every other team in the division of you know the Big Ten West had at least 100 points from the voters. Um, in, in the Big Ten East, you have three teams that are very clearly sub-100 teams in terms of vote shares that they're getting. Um, so yeah, yeah, let's talk about Maryland next, but I think we could also be talking about Indiana just as easily here. (laughs) Right. I think it's, it's similar to, you know, the big 10 West, right? Where you've got a clear pecking order of the top four, five and six in some order. And then seventh, clearly at the bottom, it's almost a mirror image of the other side of the conference. 
obviously I've taken a little bit of an interest in Maryland with Mike Loxley now being there after he was the offensive coordinator at Alabama um, last season. has been on the coaching staff for several years. I'm excited about his long-term prospects back at his alma mater. You've got a guy in there who's not only just fired up to be at Maryland, which is an invaluable thing for that kind of program, but it's also, you know, already making waves on the recruiting trail in the DMV area, bringing in a lot of talented guys. It's not going to bear fruit right away. It's going to be a rebuilding process, and it's going to take some time for Maryland to kind of get the, you know, the DJ Durkin stink off the program after everything that went down there. But this is the guy to do it. Mike Loxley not only is a good football coach, he's a better person. He's the kind of coach that you want your kid to play for, right? Like if you're a parent, you want your kid to play for a guy like Mike Loxley. He's going to do things the right way. He's going to bring in the talent. It's going to take time, but, you know, maybe they take a big step in the right direction this year. They were competitive in a lot of games last year. They were an overtime loss to Ohio State away where they went for two at the end of that game away from bowl eligibility last year. So it wouldn't be a surprise if Maryland was a bowl team this year, I don't think. Um, that's probably their ceiling, though, is getting there. But it'd be interesting at quarterback because they've had a ton of injuries at the position over the last few years. That's also led to a lot of guys having experience coming into fall camp. Oh, yeah. You know, Tyrell Pigram's back. And he's a really, you know, dual threat kind of quarterback that can make a lot of plays. But they also brought in Josh Jackson from Virginia Tech who showed a lot of promise with the Hokies, particularly when he was a freshman coming in. So that's an interesting quarterback battle. My money would be on Jackson kind of, you know, winning the job. Um, and then Anthony McFarland at running backs, a thousand yard runner last year. So that's, you know, obviously a crutch for any of the quarterback to lean on is having a guy who can run the football like that. So I'm a little higher on Maryland than the preseason poll. Uh, the coaches were, or the media was in the preseason poll. But, you know, I don't think they're a team that's going to threaten to climb into that top four, but I do think they're a team that is going to end up in a bowl game. See, I'm the exact opposite. I think they're a team that's going to look like three and nine. Mike Loxley is a great coordinator. He's a great position coach, but he's never sold me as a head coach. You know, seeing the way he he managed New Mexico, which is obviously not a great program, but at the same time, they're a program that's shown that they can at least get to bowl eligibility in the Mountain West with, you know, some kind of regularity every other year, every third year. And in his two and a half years there, he went two and 26. And obviously, like, kind of mincing words there, he was a young head coach then. You know, he was, you know, sort of in that, that vein of coaches that that sort of Lane Kiffin model of the young coordinator sort of suddenly jumping up and getting his chance maybe before he was ready. So I think that's a big part of why people are looking at him and saying he's gotten a little bit more seasoning. He's he's gotten a little bit more experience around the country at different programs. Obviously the Alabama effect is going to have some play into that. Um given how we've seen other coordinators, how we've seen other position coaches just sort of cycling through that program and having success elsewhere as well. Once you sort of get that, that aura of, of the process in your system, it, it seems to translate. So maybe there is something there, but I don't think 
Maryland is quite there yet this year. They obviously have, you know, they had to to throw a lot of different players in there. They had to throw a lot of different darts at the wall over the course of last year. And I think that will have some kind of effect. I think they're going to be competitive in a lot of their games, but I just don't think the luck is going to turn for them necessarily. So, I think it's fair to point out with Loxley, too, at New Mexico that that was a mistake on both sides. He was a fish out of water out there, recruiting out there in an element that he's never really been in. He's in his element now. He's home. He's energizing a fan base. You can already see the fruits of that labor on the recruiting trail because they are really recruiting at a really high level. And there's a ton of talent in that area. Big, high-profile teams pull talent out of the DMV area every year. And if he can build a wall around that area like he's talked about in press conferences and his funny um, Twitter images where he posts a wall building around uh, that he does pretty constantly. If he can do that effectively, then the talent level um, in College Park is going to reach um, a level that we haven't seen there in a long time for that program. So in the very least, they're going to be a lot more talented. Now, I think it's fair to say whether he can manage the program effectively from a head coaching standpoint. But getting the talent there is not going to be an issue. Um, and I, I think they're good enough this year to compete for that. I don't know what their ultimate ceiling is under Loxley, but I'm excited to find out. Yeah, I, I think Maryland is one of those programs that we've seen in recent years that can has shown they can knock off good football teams. Um, Texas can attest to that pretty damn well. Uh, but at the same time, they're a program that's just wildly inconsistent. And they've had to deal with a lot of injury issues as well. So I, a big part of it is can, can that program stay healthy? And given the yeah. fact that players have died under their watch, I'm not confident about that. I, I hate to throw that out there, but I'm just going to be crass and throw that out there. Players have died under the watch of the Maryland you know, crew, and it's not the same crew anymore, obviously. But the players that are there have obviously not seen good treatment in the past. They've seen less than adequate situations. And so my primary hope this year is that those kids get what they deserve more than anything else. You know, whatever their record turns out to be, I hope that they get a situation that's absolutely what they deserve from the college experience because they're getting paid in the college experience. So just to throw my little rant out there. On that note, a, a program that's been a little bit more consistent in their, you know, I guess if you can say mediocrity is consistency, Indiana is your dictionary definition of it um they've been a program that's hovered you know just under 500 for how many years now i think it's like 15 years now it's been a decade and a half that they've just been like seven losses eight losses i they had one seven and six season in there i think you know they've had a nine loss season in there, but otherwise it's been seven losses or eight losses. And it really depends on how far back you go, whether they played a, an 11 or 12 game season, you know, they had a couple of bowl appearances in there, but they lost those bowl games. So even then they finished sub 500. So 
Right. Yeah. It's it's death, taxes, and Indiana finishing five and seven. I think is the certainties yeah. of life currently. <laughs> they they've gone five and seven in both seasons under Tom Allen so far. Yeah. Um, getting to the end of the season with a chance to get bowl eligible against Purdue in their rivalry game and losing both times, which is you know salt in the wound at that point. Not only not getting bowl eligible, but then watching your bitter rival get bowl eligibility instead of you by beating you in the you know last game of your season. Yeah. So there's a ton of talent back at Indiana this year. I don't really know what to make of the team because when you look at a team that's been so deep in mediocrity for so many years, is returning talent that good of a thing? Do yeah. these kids know how to win football games? Because they haven't proven it long term. They obviously have some talent. I think Peyton Ramsey's you know, a more than adequate quarterback uh, for them. But, you know, can they get over that five-win hump and finally, you know, break through under Tom Allen, get bowl eligibility? Um, This was a team that looked like they were maybe moving in the right direction under Kevin Wilson uh, before everything happened there. So, you know, it's there. But I don't know, what's the ceiling for this team? Because, like you said, it's been so many years now where they've been hovering around you know, chasing that six-win rabbit that's just been so elusive for them to actually get. You know, they get it every so often, but that's kind of been where they've peaked out at is getting six and maybe fighting for a seventh in the bowl game. It's just been so difficult for them to get there. And I don't know if they can do it this year or not. It's just I don't know what the ceiling is for this program and if they're content with being right here forever. You know, it's funny that I, I think in in sort of lumping Maryland and Indiana together, you can look at Maryland as a team that has a widely variant sort of floor and ceiling. I think they're a team that could finish with two, you know, two wins all year. They're a team that could finish with eight wins all year, including a bowl win if everything shakes out right. I think Indiana's the sort of team where, like, Four wins is their floor. They're always going to get to four wins. They're going to at least tease their fan base and give them some kind of hope. Let them see a couple of, you know, happy moments there in Bloomington. And, you know, give them happy memories to live on to the next year that rolls around. Uh, And maybe the ceiling honestly is six wins and getting to a bowl game and losing that damn bowl game again. But... (laughs) I, I just don't see them getting any fewer than six win, any fewer than six losses. You know, I just yeah, I can't see it. Given the schedule, given the conference, given that division that they play in, especially, um, and you right. know, and you know, shake you know, sort of like toss-up games like the one against Maryland will really define where they end up and whether they can actually get to a bowl game. I looked this up while you were talking because I was curious. The last time Indiana won more than seven games in a season was 1993. 1993. 26 years ago, they went 8-4, and and that's the best. And that's the best season they've had since 1967. So... Well, exactly. So, you know, I think Indiana fans have come to not necessarily appreciate, but at least accept at this point that Indiana is never going to be a Big Ten East powerhouse 
I, I really hate to throw that out there. There might be a transcendent season or two in there. You get yourself one brilliant recruiting class that just all pans out. You have a chance, but you're putting long odds on that, especially against the way that the rest of that division can recruit. So, yeah, I, I, I really think that's probably their ceiling is six wins this year. Their floor is probably four. They're going to fall within that narrow band that they have for how many years that they already have done that. So, In, Indiana fans are already counting down the days to basketball season anyway. They don't care about this football season. This is just a, a time waster until the Hoosiers tip off on the hardwood. Exactly. Yeah, there's... Yeah, only so much you can say about that. We talked about it in the Big 12 preview where it's the exact same thing with a program like Kansas. You know, there there's a contentment in at least finding some sort of competitive stability, even if it's not a, um, you know, competitive for conference crown stability, at least knowing what weight you punch at and being able to hit that year after year. There's There's something to be said about that. Um, as a fan, you can at least not, you know, know that you're going to be dealing with some of those lows when you come into the year. So, right, yeah, and all right. So let's move forward. Is that who we have next on the list? I don't have it right in front of me. You know, um, it looks like Michigan State was the next one that was picked. It's honestly, That's right, yeah, it's on. Or actually, no, sorry, I'm looking at that. And Penn State actually drew two fewer points in the poll. It was Michigan. Oh, wow. It was Michigan State one fifty six, Penn State one fifty four. So, um, given that I'll be headed out into State College uh, within the next week, let's uh, talk about the Nittany Lions as the fulcrum for the Big Ten East this year. Uh yeah, I, I, I think that's about where you can put this Nittany Lions team. I think with Michigan State, they're a team that's just sort of chasing the big two in the the Big Ten East this year. There's just so much hype around the Wolverines with, you know, Urban Meyer being gone and this being Harbaugh's window of opportunity to jump in there with a veteran team. And there's the discussion about Ohio State and how Ryan Day is going to live in a post-urban landscape. Uh, so, you know, Penn State's sort of that forgotten program. They have a solid defense. I think Micah Parsons could uh, be one of the best players in the in the entire Big Ten this year. Um, and... Uh, I, you know, I think the big question marks obviously are on offense. We just saw so much talent, you know, wave goodbye through the transfer portal this year. We talked about Jawan Johnson going to Oregon last week when we talked in the Pac-12 preview. And then, you know, like, before you even get there, just having a guy like Trace McSorley gone is huge for this team. There you can't really discount having a player like that leave your program. I I think he was one of those kids that sort of got unfairly downgraded in a lot of people's minds because he did have a really solid career for Penn State. 
And he was a very consistent starter for that program over multiple years at a time that it needed it absolutely. So um, you can't discount how that's going to put them there. And I think that's a big reason why the media decided to, to sort of drop them right there under. Obviously, as we'll talk about in a moment, that also speaks to the talent that Michigan State does have coming back. So, um, But sticking to Penn State right now, I think that uncertainty on offense is the biggest part that really sort of downgrades them and has them there at fourth rather than in third and, and really pushing against Michigan and Ohio State. It's been kind of a weird offseason for Penn State because they had – you know, they had five guys go out to the draft early, but then they had a lot of guys enter the transfer portal. Yeah. Like you mentioned Jawan Johnson, uh, but that's not to mention either Tommy Stevens yeah. leaving the program. And I think it was a total of 11 players transfer, and a lot of the guys were backups, so yeah. I don't want to get too far into it, people lose that. But that's still a lot of guys leaving a program that's got to be a little bit concerning for James Franklin. But I do think there's hope with Sean Clifford at quarterback taking over from McSorley. I think that's part of the reason, maybe the biggest reason we saw Tommy Stevens leave Happy Valley is because he noticed maybe in practices that Sean Clifford's that dude. You know, he's that guy. He's better than me. He's going to be the guy that's going to take this program. And this is kind of could be a transition year for Penn State, and it makes sense to kind of go with a younger quarterback to maybe groom for a potential run at the Big Ten title in 2020. Um, they've got not just replacing Trace McSorley, losing Miles Sanders, you know, losing a second straight thousand yard rusher, uh, who really took the torch from Saquon Barkley and wasn't Saquon Barkley 2.0, was still a really good player, really effective running back for Penn State. Um, they've produced a lot of good receivers recently, losing Jawan Johnson hurts, but KJ Hamler, yeah. the guy who had 750 yards and five touchdowns last year as a, as a freshman, uh, so him coming back is a big boost for Clifford to have a guy he can really lean on who I think could really be a breakout star in college football next year as Hamler. Um, you mentioned Michael Parsons on defense. Your true gross Matos is also one of the um, you know most dominant players in the conference as well, a guy who I believe Pro Football Focus had as leading the conference in quarterback hits last oh, wow. season. So. Um, that's a, a fun stat that I had seen. So they, they've got the talent. Uh, depth could be a little bit of a question mark because of the attrition they had this offseason in terms of players entering the portal. If something ultimately happens to Clifford, there's not that guy like Tommy Stevens who can kind of right the ship and come in and calm everything down like he did so frequently uh, when Trace McSorley would get banged up over the last couple of years. So that's obviously going to hurt as well. The health of Clifford is going to be huge for Penn State this year. Well, and you mentioned the sort of cycle and churn it running back. I think another big thing is Ricky Slade. How does he, you know, oh, yeah. how does he step up this year? He's he's looked good in the chances that he gets on the field, but he's never really had to take on that that primary role that we we've, we've seen, you know, especially Barkley take on. Um, and if he can be even a fraction of that type of talent this offense does have real potential and that does free up a lot of space for Clifford to do more and be a bit more comfortable as he grows into that, that position under center. So I, I, 
I, as much as I hate to say it for everybody I'm about to be living around, I think fourth is a really fair place to be putting this Penn State team. Um, just given those question marks on offense, as much as these players have been graded highly as high school prospects coming into the college ranks, there's a lot of talent that we haven't seen actually produce those results on the field. And I think until we see that, it's it, there's a that that's the main reason why the media is skeptical and why, well, as somebody sitting here talking to you on a podcast as a, a media member that writes to you every week, uh, yeah, I guess I can fit right there in the me, you know that skeptical media as well. But would it surprise you if they ended up winning the entire Big Ten? Would oh, that be too no. big of a surprise? Oh, hell no. I, I think as we said you know, earlier in this segment, um, this is very much like the Big Ten West. And I think it's funny to see sort of the balance that we do between the two divisions this year and having four teams that you know, have that potential to burst out and also have that potential to flame out at the very top. And then you have those two teams at five and six that are, you know, really your question mark teams where it comes down to how they play against one another in divisional play. And then you have a very clear sort of cellar dweller to be nice about it. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if Penn State launched up and just stole away the division entirely. As we said, you know, earlier, Urban Meyer is gone Jim Harbaugh still has to actually prove he can do it and sweep, you know, sweep through the the division. And I think the next team we're going to talk about Michigan state is maybe even the most interesting of that bunch because Mark D'Antonio's group has consistently had one of the best defenses in the entire country. Um, That unit was, top five last year, I believe, if not the top unit in the country statistically in multiple categories. Um, And it's something we've seen year over year over year. So we have to, you have to, you cannot discount the Spartans just on that regard alone. But then, you know, they fought off injuries as well, just like these other teams. And having a guy like Brian Lewerke coming back really opens the door for a lot of things if he stays completely healthy throughout the year. Because we saw real bursts over the past couple of years from him making a big difference for that offense. If he does it again this year, and if he can do it on a more consistent basis this year, Michigan State is another team I wouldn't be surprised at all to sweep through and, and steal it away from the big two. With Michigan State, they've kind of been the same team year after year recently where it's been a dominant defense and then kind of a, you know, an offense that's been stuck in the mud and kind of unable to really make any headway. Uh, We saw that in a pretty forgettable bowl game performance against Oregon. Uh, They made seven points against Michigan in a loss. They scored six points each in losses to Ohio State and Nebraska. I mean, you're talking about just their four games where they finished with under – you know, under double-digit points in the single digits. So what can they do offensively this year to do it? And part of it is keeping Brian Lewerke healthy. But part of that's yeah. got to be the offensive line has to be a lot better this year. He took a beating last year. Oh, yeah. Their running game 
has been one of the consistent themes. They've at least been able to run the ball in recent years, even when quarterback play wasn't necessarily very good. But they couldn't run the ball at all last year. They finished um, 13th in the Big Ten, 115th in the country in rushing offense last year. Um, and that was with a guy um, in L.J. Scott who had proven to be an effective runner um, back. And then Connor Hayward was impressive in some spurts as well. But none of those guys finished with more than – 530 yards last year. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy to think for a Michigan State team that's kind of prided themselves on the pro style, pound the rock, three yards in a cloud of dust offense that, you know, is going to try to beat you with some play action passes every now and then. But for the most part, Mark D'Antonio wants to run the ball, take care of the football, shorten games, and let his defense do the work. Um, so I don't know. I, I think they have. A lot of good players. They obviously bring back a ton of talent from that offense, a ton of talent from a defense last year that was very, very good. Um, Kenny Willicks um, at defensive end for the Spartans was, you know, one of the best players, not just in the, um, not just in the Big Ten, but in college football last year. Another guy coming back that's going to be um, really tough to deal with for opposing Big Ten offensive coordinators to have to really scheme against. So. I think you'll see a lot of the same. I think you'll see a dominant defense, but I'm not convinced the offense is going to be able to take enough of a leaf to get Sparty on top of the Big Ten East again. I I definitely agree there. I I think it is very much that that sort of asterisk in terms of the the health of Lewerke throughout the season. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you look at that running game, and it, it's always had the potential, but as you said, it does hinge on the line. Um, more than that, if if this team is going to have any success, it has to come from the defense because you can't depend on that offense to, um, you know, be the sort of transcendent unit that's going to steal away the Big Ten. If you're going to steal the Big Ten this year as a Michigan State, it's going to have to be almost exclusively because your defense just plays so far above the rest of the competition and is able to, you know, sort of offer its own run support. I think that's going to be another big thing is Michigan State's offense is going to excuse me, Michigan State's defense is going to have to set up short fields for its offense, if not punch the ball in themselves off turnovers. Right. I think another, to mention it again, I think this conference and this division too is kind of wide open in that I don't know if there's a truly elite team in the Big Ten period this year, but there's a lot of good teams that could easily end up getting that Rose Bowl bid, and Michigan State's another one that will be right there in the thick of it. Yeah. And, you know, they've been in the thick of it the past couple years as well. As much as we sort of gloss over Michigan State, I think, a lot as, you know, I, I think even as dedicated followers of college football, it can be really easy to get distracted by the bigger names in that division. And Michigan State has sneaked up several times. You know, in the past, in the past decade, Michigan State has been as good as any other team in that division. So, and and that's a testament to again the consistency of having a guy like Mark D'Antonio, who is a really solid fundamental, you know, coach. 
and is also somebody that's been dedicated enough not to to run off and seek other opportunities. You know, he's really been in that sort of Gary Patterson mold of a guy who wants to stay somewhere and create something sustainable rather than somebody who wants to jump the ship and and find the shiny new opportunity. So that's a that's a big part of it. Um, and I think that's a big reason why Michigan State looks like a team that could swoop in and steal the division away. Because, as we mentioned at the beginning, a team like Ohio State, who I think uh, the media picked to finish second, uh, right there, you know, in the in the battle with with their rivals from that school up north, uh, they, uh, you know, they have a, a, a coach who has done it on an interim basis before against Ohio State's, you know, weaker non-conference schedule. So, um, but hasn't done it over the course of a full season before and hasn't done it without Urban Meyer. There is sort of a a shadow hanging over his head. So it's going to be really interesting to see what Ryan Day can do with this program this year as a first-year full-time head coach. Um, Ohio State, obviously, you know, they have the talent, but they don't have talent that's necessarily shown it. Losing a guy like Dwayne Haskins is something that most programs wouldn't be able to weather. Obviously, the Buckeyes are the sort of powerhouse where they're supposed to retool rather than rebuild. And they got a guy like Justin Fields in, again, through the transfer portal to, to mitigate that loss. But it also, you know, um, sort of led to a lot of depletion of the the players that are, had already been recruited. They had to turn to several other transfers just to sort of bulk out that position on the roster after they got Fields and everybody else looked at it like, I, I, I don't really know what the players ended up thinking about it, but the way I would read it is it just came off as a total slight and everybody sort of looked at it while well, he's bringing in his own guys and we're not going to get that chance, so adios. And as much as uh, coaches talk about you know wanting to stick around and play for the long haul and everything, they're also... You know, their jobs depend on guys producing as soon as possible, and they're not necessarily the types who are going to stick with a player who's, you know, gotten the yips or a player who's had a, you know, a downswing, especially when you have the shiny new toy on the roster to go to next. Right. Yeah. And I think the talent thing is what the big deal is Ohio State. I don't know about if Ryan Day long-term is going to be able to keep this program at the level of success that Urban Meyer had it at. Uh, but that's not anything against Ryan Day. Urban Meyer, you know, ignoring his issues off the football field um, and some of the stuff that came out recently, um, is one of the best coaches in college football history. If you really look at just winning percentage-wise, he's the third best coach in college football history in terms of winning percentage. Um, and he did it at multiple places, obviously. So, saying he can't sustain that level isn't a slight towards Ryan Day um, in any way. But in the immediate future, I still think Ohio State should be considered the team to beat in the Big Ten, in my opinion, because they have, top to bottom, the most talented team in the conference. Replacing Dwayne Haskins is kind of an unexpected thing. I think Day and Meyer and all those guys 
were expecting Haskins to be a multi-year starter in Columbus, and then he had such a terrific season last year that, you know, he went ahead and jumped to the pros. And, you know, a wise decision. He was a top 15 pick um, and, you know, is getting to actually get paid to play football now. Yeah. Um, you know, a novel concept. So um, good for him. But that kind of changed everything for Ohio State because they really – there was no real draft type surrounding Haskins coming into last year. It was expected that you know he'd at least be back for his redshirt junior season, and him going pro kind of changed everything to where they had to go out. And obviously, they didn't think enough of guys like Tate Martell or Matthew Baldwin that they were content with standing pat. You know, they wanted to go out there and make a splash, and obviously, to get a chance to bring in a guy like Justin Fields, who it should be said was considered 1A and 1B with Trevor Lawrence coming out of high school. I think you do have to jump on that because, you know, I've seen Trevor Lawrence play college football. I didn't see him much in high school. But I imagine he did much of the same at the high school level. So if these guys thought Justin Fields, these recruiting experts thought Justin Fields was that good, then, man, we could be in for seeing something special um, in Columbus next season with him. But it's probably going to take a special season for Fields for Ohio State to maintain that perch. Because Dwayne Haskins really masked a lot of flaws for Ohio State last year that, you know, people didn't maybe pay attention to because he was so good and the team still ended up going 13-1 and and winning the Rose Bowl. But you're talking about a defense that took a significant step backwards last season. And that's where it all really leads to this year for me is if, you know, Greg Madison coming in from Michigan um, and Jeff Halfley can get this defense back on the right track there's a ton of talent, but, you know, defensively they ranked 71st in the country in total defense last year. Um, they, you know, they struggled in any of the advanced categories. They struggled out as well. So I, that's where it goes. They've got a good place to start with Chase Young, who's, you know, another in the line of elite pass rushers the Buckeyes have churned out in recent years. So, and nine returning starters otherwise on defense. So there's talent there. It's just can these guys kind of fix things. Um, but I think with Fields, going back to offense, with Fields' ability to, you know, he has the big arm, but also with his legs combining with J.K. Dobbins, who I think might be the best running back in the entire country, um, I, that still could be a really devastating com- combination. Um, obviously a lot of talent still at receiver, even after losing – uh, a guy like Paris Campbell and several others, Terry McLaurin and all those guys. Um, Ohio State still, to me, should be considered the Big Ten favorite. I think um, I'm, a, I guess, a little surprised to see that they weren't picked that um, by the media. Yeah, I, I think a big part of that hinges on the question marks around Day, and it hinges around losing Haskins. Because I think, obviously the Buckeyes have enough talent to be right up there at the top of the conference. And if you look at the way their schedule lines up, you know, they're playing Florida Atlantic and Cincinnati at home for their first two games this year. They don't have one of those marquee, um, you know, out of conference games that we've seen on their schedule in recent years that has helped boost them into the college football playoffs. So they really do have to play, mistake-free football and play winning football throughout the year to have that sort of shot um, at the college football playoff that we'll be assessing more in the next segment. So that's where I'm going to stop here. Um, But, you know, you even look at a team like Cincinnati, and there's no guarantee, especially there early in the season where you're beginning to feel your way through, um, you know, in real game time, 
that all of these moving parts are going to work together well, especially with a team as veteran as Cincinnati and a team that's, you know, has a coach that obviously knows a lot of what Ohio State is doing intimately. Uh, Luke Fickle, you know, having been there before, under Meyer and, and working in Columbus, is, is going to have a fair idea of a lot of the concepts that Ryan Day is going to bring to the table, even as he switches it up. So I, I think that if I was going to, you know, sort of pencil any game that Ohio State must win and must avoid the trap, I think that's the trap game on their schedule. It, it I, you know, I've written about trap games in the past and those sort of different defining things that set it up for them. <laughs> Um, this is definitely meets a lot of those criteria in terms of being at home. They're going to be a favorite, but they're playing a highly touted team that's, you know, like an underdog from a lower, you know, a lesser regarded conference, but has all the tools there to, to win on a given Saturday. And Ohio State could lose that game early, run the table, and again be a you know, a 12 and one conference champion. But I think a game like that could be enough to, to sort of knock them out of playoff contention as well. So, so that's really where I sit with the Buckeyes is everybody is in place to have a great season. It's just, can you actually pull it off? And that's right. And that's, you know, I, I think you can say a lot of those same things about Michigan and, you know, the the big difference there is they have Harbaugh back and they do have their quarterback back in Shea Patterson. Um, so, you know, the, that's really what sort of separates Michigan and is most likely why more media members were willing to tap the Wolverines and the Buckeyes. But, I just... I, sorry, I've got to... I've got to see it with Jim Harbaugh in Michigan before I'm ready to tap them as Big Ten champions because there was so much hype surrounding him coming in, you know, to his alma mater in Ann Arbor after the success he had with the 49ers and previously at Stanford. But we haven't seen it yet. I mean, I, I'd hesitate to say Harbaugh's on the hot seat at this point, but it wouldn't take much in the way of losses next year to maybe put him there because his tenure has been a little disappointing Um, You know, you're four years in, you haven't won uh, not just the Big Ten, you haven't won the Big Ten East, you haven't beaten Ohio State yet. And this has to be the year that that happens. Oh, yeah. To me. Yeah, you're Harbaugh's 0-4 against Ohio State, now with Urban Meyer gone. You know, it's right there for the taking, right? The division's open. It's time for Michigan to kind of ascend to the top to finally get the Ohio State monkey off their back, especially with the Buckeyes having to come to the big house this year um, at the end of the season in a game that will most likely decide um, the Big Ten East and who moves on to the to the Big Ten championship game the following week. But, you know, I do think it's interesting that Harbaugh maybe looked inward some uh, this offseason, particularly after they got – embarrassed in the Peach Bowl by a Florida team that not many people really gave much of a shot in that game coming in. I mean, I know I picked Michigan, oh, yeah. um, and most everyone did, and then Florida just mollywopped the Wolverines in that game in Atlanta. But I do think that 
Harbaugh saw maybe some of the writing on the wall. He brought in Josh Gaddis, who was, you know, the wide receivers coach at Penn State and then went to Alabama for a year uh, and now gets the shot at calling this offense. And they're making some changes. You know, Harbaugh's whole thing forever has been a pro-style system where you run the ball to set up play-action passes and you try to take care of the football. You don't take a lot of risks. But that kind of goes out the window now. You know, Gaddis is going with more of an up-tempo style He's got a quarterback in Shea Patterson who is comfortable running an up-tempo style and is comfortable freelancing, kind of dancing around and wanting to make plays. It'll be interesting if Harbaugh takes the training rules off because it felt like all of last year that uh, Patterson was, you know, kind of trying to do things with one hand tied behind his back because he wasn't giving – given free reign to kind of be the player that he likes to be. Uh, So he just kind of was the game manager last year, but he's not the – You've got plenty of guys on that roster that could be game managers. You have Shea Patterson because he has the ability to elevate you to the next level. Um, He also has the ability as a gunslinger to lose you a football game because he throws four or five interceptions. But, you know, you take the good with the bad there. He could be a guy who goes, gets hot, finally gets you over the top against Ohio State. He could be a guy that turns it over four times and you lose to Army week two. You know, and neither of those things would be a surprise with him. So... I think it'd be interesting. That's one of the more fascinating potential upsets in college football next year is week two. What if Army goes into the big house and upsets Michigan? How hot is Jim Harbaugh's seat at that point? Well, I love it because you could see Ohio State losing to Cincinnati and Michigan losing to Army in that same week. Like, how beautiful would that be in terms of just utter chaos setting up already in September? We talk about the Big Ten, especially at the top of both divisions, looking like a group that could cannibalize one another. But those two have really tough out-of-conference games against, um, you know, in Ohio State's case, a group of five opponent, and in Michigan's case, an independent opponent that pretty much slots in with, you know, that group of five distinction rather than a power five one like we see with the Notre Dame. So, I, I I think one or both of those, I think at least one of those teams loses in that week. <laughs> and I yeah, think, I mean, wouldn't and, be a surprise for sure. And I think it wouldn't be surprising to see both of them meet up in, in their game against one another, 10-1 and one with their losses coming against smaller schools, which would be... hilarious on paper on one hand, but on the other hand, it would be very much in line with what we see from the Big Ten this year in terms of teams having those question marks on their rosters. And, you know, I I think the big question mark for Michigan this year, obviously they have quarterback, you know, the quarterback situation is locked down, but how's the running back situation going to look? You know, Karan Higdon and Chris Evans are both gone. And, uh, you know, it's really going to fall to a guy like, you know, True Wilson or, uh, you know, uh, Tariq Black trying to stay healthy or something like that to, to keep Michigan more balanced on offense. Because a big part of that, you know, play action and, and pro style sort of look and playing with a guy like Shea Patterson is having some kind of comp- competent backfield to 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 make that an effective way to play so right 
This is a good point bringing up the running game because that's, again, been Harbaugh's kind of bread and butter. It's helped by they bring back four starters up front on the offensive line, so that'll help the transition for whoever. But I'm also interested, you know, Michigan had one of the best defenses in all of college football last year, uh, led the Big Ten in a lot of categories, were top five in a lot of categories across the country. But they also lost three just studs. If you look at Devin Bush, Chase Winovich, and Rashawn Gary, oh, yeah. three really – you know, pillars of the program on that side of the ball. How do those guys get replaced? Obviously, Harbaugh's recruited at a high level and brought in a lot of talent to Ann Arbor. But those are three game-changing football players on that side of the ball that are now not going to be there, especially a guy like a Devin Bush, who was, you know, such a athletic freak at that position, a guy who could run a 4-4 and track down sideline to sideline, but also drop back and effectively cover you know, running back side or even the occasional receiver um, in passing situations. So losing those guys is huge. And I don't think that's really being talked about enough by the media. They're just looking at a guy like having Shea Patterson come back and having, you know, most of the offensive line intact um, and just assuming they're going to be able to replace those three really talented defensive players next season. And maybe they will. Um, but I, I'm not sold on Michigan. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. It, to me, man, in the in the Peach Bowl, does that not look like a team that had just absolutely quit? Yeah. That's, exactly. That to me, that's like, not a good sign. No. Coming into this year, there's a lot of rebuilding trust as much as there is rebuilding the roster itself. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, sort of swings into where we think these teams are going to finish. And I, as, as high as the media is on Michigan, I don't think they're finishing first. Um, and it's really hard to say who will finish first. I, I think Ohio State is probably the, the likeliest candidate to do so. And then, honestly, I'd put Michigan State above Michigan. If Lewerke stays healthy, I just think defensively they're going to be able to keep themselves in games that they would otherwise have no business being in. Um, and then I think it's a toss-up between Michigan and Penn State this year. I think they both have question marks and coaching staffs that really need to, they're going to be under enough pressure that um, it could tighten things up and, and sort of cause a few mistakes in play calling and everything else that just, you know, turn wins into losses. I think number five, I'm inclined to go, eh, I'm going to say Maryland and then Indiana um, and then obviously Rutgers in the, in that, that seller seat. So it's interesting that we're both picking against the Wolverines. I'm on board with Ohio state winning the big 10 East. I also have Michigan third, by the way, but I've got Penn state second instead of Michigan state. I really think the Nittany Lions are going to be a bit of a surprise this year. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they ended up taking the division and winning the entire Big Ten outright. So I got Michigan third, Michigan State fourth, and then I agree with you with five, six, seven of Maryland, Indiana, Rutgers. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a division, again, just like the West, where any of the top four winning it wouldn't really surprise me that much. I, I could see any number of those flawed contenders coming through. 
but when we come back from the break, we'll talk about whether or not any of these teams can actually make the college football playoff, which is really, you know, the big question mark in college football from year to year. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back from the break, everybody, for our final segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week. We've been talking about the Big Ten in our first few segments. We broke down each of the divisions and where we think everybody's going to land in the table. And now it's time to talk about the conference championship game and whether any of these teams could actually make the college football playoff. Uh, So I know we uh, lined up on Ohio State as our team in the the conference championship game. I have Wisconsin against them. I'm obviously inclined to pick the Badgers with my heart. I think, you know, I've seen Ohio State rip that heart out enough times that going with my head, I'd pick the Buckeyes in that game. So, so yeah, that's kind of where I land if I'm being pragmatic about it. But fingers crossed that, you know, I look like a fool and the heart wins out. So... There's no better feeling than thinking your team's going to lose and they surprise you and come out there and win, is there? Oh, yeah. Well, I and, you know, thinking back to when the the divisions were lined up differently and that five-loss Wisconsin team came out and just absolutely creamed Nebraska 70-31 to in the conference championship game, it's that sort of feeling right there. And getting, getting that would be wonderful this year, but... I have no confidence in it actually happening. So, yeah, I'll go with Ohio State just on on pure pragmatism. Yeah, I've got Ohio State, too. I've got them over Iowa um, in the Big Ten title game. Um, Again, I mean, I think you've got eight true contenders for the Big Ten this year, um, four in each division. So it's a a really fun race. But that brings us to the question you were posing before the break, is if, is the Big Ten going to be shut out of the playoff again? And to me, I think it's a yes. I don't think there's a playoff team in this conference. I think Ohio State's got a shot. Um, but I, I think the conference is so kind of wide open and there's so many teams around the same level that you're going to end up with a two-loss conference champion this year. And I think Ohio State will have a couple of losses with some maybe early growing pains with Justin Fields at quarterback before they find their footing and really start getting it going at the end of the season enough to win the conference. But I think the Rose Bowl is going to be the peak for the Big Ten champion this year. I, I, I think that's fair as well. You know, obviously, given the brand names around these teams, if one of them does happen to sweep up and even finishes a one-loss champion, the possibility is always there. Again, it's going to depend on who that one loss comes against, because as I said I could easily see both Michigan and Ohio State losing to to little sisters of the poor in week two. And if both of them do that, it pretty much tanks your two biggest names in that conference. And then it really depends on a team like Nebraska living up to the, the highest possible expectations that have been there. Or, you know, a team like Penn State really breaking through and putting and Ohio State and Michigan to shame uh, to really have any chance. And I don't see either of those teams doing that. As I mentioned over the first two segments, I 
I think both of them are good. I think both of them are going to be dealing with, you know, issues of attrition, issues of growth that don't put them into that spot just yet. So I, I'm with you. I'm really hesitant to call any of these teams playoff teams uh, unless one of them really does break through and just absolutely run the table and forces the committee's hand. That's really the only way that, that the Big Ten is going to get in this year is if one of those teams really does rise up, get all the lucky breaks they possibly can, and finish undefeated in the regular season as the conference champ. Which, you know, um, leads me to kind of in turn throw a question back at you. In, you know, recent bowl seasons, we've seen discussions about relative conference strength and everything. And... You know, even throughout the regular season, we see week over week sort of conference power rankings in addition to where teams fall within conferences. Just how do each conference fall against one another? And I think in the college football landscape, obviously the last two leagues we're talking about in this series of previews are the two that have been the pinnacle of of football over the past, you know, five years and uh, it it really comes down to where does the big 10 stack up in relation to the PAC 12 and the big 12 more than anything. Yeah. I mean, I we're talking about the SEC and ACC last, but I don't want to say that the ACC is one of the best two leagues because it's Clemson and then a significant gap below them at this point, which we'll get more into next week when we break down that conference. But I think the Big Ten's right on par at least with, I think we can probably agree the SEC's top to bottom the best league, but I think the Big Ten's right there. When you look at just quality depth, I don't think they have as good at the top. Like I think, you know, with teams like Alabama, Georgia, LSU might be a little bit better at the top in the SEC. But in terms of depth of the top eight teams, I mean, you're talking about a really quality league. Um, I think uh, they're right there with the Pac-12, honestly, and that and the Big 12. They're all, you know, deep leagues, and we've talked about this the last few weeks, that these leagues have a lot of quality football teams in them. Um, and, I mean, I both of us are saying we don't see a Big Ten team in the playoff, but it wouldn't shock if an Ohio State or a Michigan or a Michigan State or Penn State ultimately, or even a Wisconsin or Iowa broke free and got into the playoff this year. If Rutgers did it, then I would just assume the end of the world has already happened and we're living in a, a weird simulation that I wish would stop. But yeah. um, that's about it. I mean, you got a lot of quality teams. So I, it's, it's tough to judge leagues, though. There's no real fair way to do it. Um, a lot of people look at bowl games, but bowl games have never really been a very good judge outside of the playoff because of you know, there's so many factors that go in, especially nowadays with so many players sitting out bowl games to prepare for, you know, their football future at the next level. So at conference strength is tough. I mean, any region of the country will tell you their league's underrated and should be, you know, right on par with the SEC, which, you know, has been the league that everyone's looked to over the last decade plus of college football. But this is a quality league. The Big Ten gets a lot of unfair flack because of you know 
the fact that they don't have as many high-powered offenses as some of the leagues. But they've been a similar league, at least in style, to the SEC, but they've never gotten the same praise. Yeah, and I think part of that is obviously recruiting. You can play a certain style, but unless you're getting the players who can really play that style, there's only so much you can do with it, and there is always going to be a ceiling for how effective it is. Um, I, I think at the same time, when we look at conferences top to bottom, especially like you just mentioned and how deep it is, we tend to sort of we sort of tend to focus at those teams at the top, like you said, like in Alabama, Georgia, and LSU. You know, you really have those transcendent sort of top 15 teams right there hovering. But a Big Ten as well, it, the, the potential is there to have that same number of teams. You know, in Ohio State and in Michigan are more often than not going to get the benefit of the doubt if they continue winning. A Nebraska is going to get that same sort of treatment just based on their history. Penn State's going to get that. We've seen Michigan State and Wisconsin honestly underrated at times over the years. They're ones that don't get as much of a bump in that, but still have consistently good teams. Um, we, we tend to discount the top-to-bottom assessment. And also when we look at the Big Ten, we, we tend to look at those teams that came in as late additions. You know, Nebraska opened the door for Maryland and for Rutgers. And the fact is, is even Nebraska hasn't been the sort of team that a Nebraska can be um, since they joined the Big Ten. So, it's, well, especially since we went away from legends and leaders, at least. So thankfully, I, I I had to throw that in there, and uh, you know, for for as many years as you have to listen to me talk about Big Ten previews, you're probably going to hear me snipe about that. So, <laughs> fair warning for the 2020 preview. Um, but yeah, I I think you know as we mentioned, Nebraska was you know a higher ranked team against Wisconsin and lost to a five loss. Badgers squad by 39 points in conference title games. They were much more competitive in the Big 12 for what it was worth. And some of that is the talent that you have. Some of that is the coaching you have. But in the end, perceptions are what they are because what you do most recently on the field. And I think we need some, like, the Big Ten really needs some of its historic powerhouses to sort of snap up like Nebraska and really own it this year. Yeah, no, I agree. And Nebraska being Nebraska, again, would be huge for the conference's perception on a national level, for sure. Getting the Big Ten West maybe back on par with the East when you're talking about teams like Wisconsin and Iowa who have been pretty consistent over the years, maybe a Northwestern, maybe with Pat Fitzgerald, you can at least count on them being competitive. And maybe with Hunter Johnson, maybe they take that next level in this division. Yeah. And these divisions really do look evenly split because the talk for the Big Ten over the years has been that it's heavily weighted towards the East, right? With Ohio State, yeah. Michigan, Michigan State, and Penn State being in the East, there's been several years where it's looked like the four best teams in the conference have all resided in that division. Well, and but, e even when it was legends and leaders, you know, you had Ohio State and Penn State and Wisconsin on the same side of the ledger, opposite of Michigan that could never 
pardon my language, pull their heads out of their asses in the pre-Harbaugh era. So, yeah, I I think, um, you know, league balance has always been the biggest question for the Big Ten since they expanded and were able to divide into two divisions. And how do you really split this? And is, you know, that was the question from the outset. Is geography really the best way to split this or not? And that's the whole reason you got silly ass names. Um, but it, it it really came from a place of how can we balance this so we get good matchups in our championship game every year? And while we've seen good matchups, we haven't seen the sort of marquee big name ones that they were really trying to engineer from the outset. You know, we never saw that Michigan-Ohio State one that they were trying to, to generate when they created those original conference or divisions in the first place. So really getting those big names and having big names on both sides is going to be huge for trying to drive it up. Because if you have, you know, top five, top 10 teams that are both coming in with one loss to that championship game, it makes a big difference than having a a three, four, five loss team on one side facing off against a two loss team. Right. If you could bill it as a playoff quarterfinal, that makes it so much better. That's what the SEC has been able to do for several years now, whether yeah. it was Alabama, Georgia last year, even when it was Auburn, Georgia the year before that, those games were effectively quarterfinal games for the college football playoff. And that's been huge for the SEC. And that's something the Big Ten hasn't been able to do. As you know, good as Northwestern was in the Big Ten last year, people weren't really tuning in to watch Ohio State play Northwestern because there wasn't really – no one really thought there was much of a shot for Northwestern to pull off that win. And obviously, as it turns out, they didn't. And Ohio State got the win, yeah. as most would have projected. So that's been the thing. Um, to wrap up, Zach, give me, your, give me your offensive and defensive players of the year. I'm going to be a homer with the offensive player of the year. Jonathan Taylor is going to swoop it. He's going to have another 2,000-yard season. It's going to be absolutely ridiculous um, when he finishes outside the top three in the Heisman race uh, because of it, but he will be the Big Ten Offensive Player of the Year. On defense, um, I'm going to be a homer for where I'm about to be heading, and I I really like Micah Parsons at Penn State. I think he's really going to be the glue on that defense, and while we look at, like, an A.J. Evanessa at at Iowa, um, who's, you know, probably the the consensus pick from a lot of people, I I just think Parsons is going to have that next leap, and... I don't know, maybe it's just premonition, maybe it's just blind blind faith that, you know, I'll be heading somewhere where something cool happens. But that's usually the case if you move to a college town in college football that something cool is going to happen. So, I think the race for Office of Division Play of the Year is pretty interesting because I don't think there's a clear-cut front-runner on either side of the ball, which isn't usually the case when yeah. we're seeing in these kind of previews. So... Offensively, I'm going to go running back as well, which is kind of surprising because usually it's quarterbacks that kind of take this. But I'm going with J.K. Dobbins at Ohio State. I think he's going to have a monster season and kind of spearhead Ohio State's run to another Big Ten championship. Um, He's a fun player to watch. I think he's going to be an outstanding professional football player after next season because I think his junior season is going to be his final year. It's his money year, as I like to say, in Columbus. So he's going to... 
I think we'll have a big year. He'll lead Ohio State to the conference title. He'll take home those honors. Defensively, I've kind of go ba- gone back and forth. A.J. Epineza is a guy who I've talked about a lot. Chase Young at Ohio State's mm-hmm. got a shot. But I'm actually going to kind of pull a surprise, I guess. I'm going to go Patty Fisher at Northwestern. Nice. I think he's going to... I think he's going to lead the conference in tackles. I think he's going to really lead Northwestern's defense, and they're going to be really competitive and right there in the thick of the of the Big Ten West race to try to get back to the Big Ten title game again. So I like Patty Fisher to ultimately win it. Awesome. I think it's a really fair pick, and especially if Northwestern is going to compete in the Big Ten West, he's going to play a big role in that as much as we you know talked about the offense and Hunter Johnson there. So, uh, and, and I'm with you there. Um, obviously, my picks are, are somewhat Homer and somewhat wishful thinking, possibly um, maybe more with Parsons than with Taylor, because obviously Taylor is, you know, right there Proven. in the, the thick of the names that are there that are in the mix. But uh, yeah, on that note, I, 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 I think it really speaks to the depth of the Big Ten, both individually and in terms of the teams that are fighting for the top of each division that we're not necessarily in alignment on a lot of these things. And even where we stack teams up in the hierarchy, we were able to group them into sort of their pods together, but we were not always, you know, sort of lockstep in those positions. It, it really speaks to the fact that this will be a fun race moving ahead. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Definitely, definitely fun. Very similar to the Pac-12, in my opinion, with what we talked about last week. There being some clear contenders, but maybe not the elite, elite, the elite of the elite teams, but a lot of teams that could jump up and take the conference and really make the, the race so much fun week to week. Oh, for sure. On that note, everybody, we're going to wrap up this podcast for the week. Um, next Wednesday, we'll be back with you to talk about the ACC, home of defending college football playoff national champion Clemson. You all have a great rest of your week, and uh, we'll be back with you Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in.